0: You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit illinilife.org. Everybody? Good morning. Whoa, iPad, that would have been bad. In fact, that's making me nervous. The Bible is just too... Much too hefty, too weighty, too big for this stand. I'll have to put it down here. That's fine. All right, sorry, let me get settled for just a sec. My name is Ashley Hobley. Like David said, I've been on staff here for a while. I used to be um, before coming on staff, I used to be a middle school teacher, so I get excited about the opportunity to teach every once in a great while. I'm excited to help out. I'm excited to share the load of teaching, and quite honestly, I've been really excited about this study in Acts. I know I have gotten a lot out of it in just individual times. I hope you have too, or in your small groups, or here on Sundays. I also feel like I need to do like a Darth Vader uh, uh, warning or something. I feel like I'm breathing really heavy in this mask. I feel like hot. Plus pregnant, plus mask, is crazy. So if I'm breathing heavy, I'm so sorry. I should say, like, instead of Luke all the time, or instead of Acts all the time, I should be like, the book that Luke wrote, if something, if that's getting a little crazy for you. But, um, yeah, excited to study. All right, so, have you guys heard this one? A guy, a nice guy, let's say, a wizard, and two priests walk into a town. The setup of a hilarious joke no that's the setup of our scripture today we are in acts remember that we are in the book of acts which is all about the work of the holy spirit are we is slides working today okay great i was going to say otherwise open up your bible um x is all about the work of the holy spirit about carrying the message of salvation forward to all people so everything that we talk about with acts is going to be about that the book documents the outward movement of salvation from a small remnant of Jesus' followers that are left after his death and resurrection all the way to the ends of the earth. Okay, overcoming nationalistic, racist, social barriers, salvation is starting to reach all people. If I were to turn the book of Acts into an image, um, it would probably be that of a rock being thrown into a pond. Okay, the rock, which is the gospel, being thrown out into the world. And the rippling flowing out and out and out, the circles getting bigger and bigger and farther and farther. As the Spirit carries the church forward here, as it's starting, the people have to wrestle with their assumptions and their biases about how God is operating and what He is doing. Okay, so let me say that again, because I think that we need to hear that today just as much as when the church was getting started. As the Spirit, the Spirit of God is the one that carries the church forward, people have to wrestle with their assumptions and their biases of how God operates and what he is doing. And this is especially evident in the passage that we're looking at today. So we are in Acts 8 the whole time. Um, We started a little bit of that chapter last week at the end of um, talking about Stephen. At the beginning of the chapter, we're reminded that a persecution of Christ followers has broke out, where men and women are being dragged out of their homes, they're being put in prison, they are scared for their lives, okay? So much so that all the believers, with the exception of the apostles, they've scattered. They have fled throughout the surrounding places of Judea and Samaria. So last week, we talked about Stephen, which was Christianity's first martyr. Um, Sorry being killed for testifying about Jesus being the Messiah in Jerusalem. Okay, that's where we were last week. He was killed as a means to silence him, to silence the gospel message, to keep it from spreading. So we have this interesting thing where Stephen um, is murdered. He is is murdered. That leads to significant persecution of Christ followers, um, mostly led by Saul. We're going to come back to him later. And then so people scatter geographically. They're all over the place. But look in verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. The result of all of that? Widespread evangelism. Oh, the irony there. What a reversal of expectations here. Remember the Jewish leaders had intended to stop this message about jesus at all costs first by killing jesus himself and then by moving on to his followers threats and fear and intimidation killing people with the point of trying to kill and contain the message okay so what was intended to be a smothering turned into a spreading like water on a grease fire you would, you would think that water would put it out, but what the water does is it actually causes the grease to splash outward, okay? So you're making the fire bigger by doing that. You're turning a flame into a firework, and that's sort of what's happening here. All the things those that were in power were afraid of, they all start happening. And ironically, it's a consequence of their attempt to control. Let me give you some examples. So the the leader's desire to control the temple, right? We saw Peter at the temple last week. Their desire to control that causes the message or I'm sorry, Stephen, causes the message and the spirit of God to start moving out beyond the temple, even beyond the holy city of Jerusalem. Their desire to control the words, the message of the apostles, causes the message and the spirit of God to start being spread now not just by apostles teaching but by every believer every believer now becomes a missionary as they're spread out in the region their desire to control the message and the spirit of god to stay just in that supposedly true and authentic nation of israel causes the message of god to move and to spread out to all people and all nations Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. The next verse narrows the lens in on one particular believer who fled. So in 5, we read that Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. All right, we need to pause and chat for a minute. Make sure that we're all on the same page about the context here. You guys might have talked about that in your small group this week. But who is Philip? Philip? is a guy from a couple chapters ago that we saw was appointed a deacon over the church. What's a deacon? Well, the apostles said, hey, we are having problems caring for the needs of the church. We pick seven guys. Stephen was one of them. Philip was one of them um, to take care of the church. The persecution hits. He leaves. Who are the Samaritans? The Samaritans are a race of people who live geographically and culturally separate from the Jewish people, okay? But their ancestry is the same, okay, if you trace it back far enough. So we're talking like over a 1,000 years back, the Samaritans factioned off from the nation of Israel with more and more growing hostility between those two groups. Why? What's the big deal? What's the hostility about? Well, the Samaritans were despised by the devout followers of Judaism because they were seen as like hybrids, if you will, okay, both in race and in their religion. So race, as they started to intermarry with non-Jews, they started to physically look different and then culturally practice different things. And then hybrids in religion, um, because the Samaritans chose to leave out some pretty significant things from the Old Testament. And so then they were regarded as kind of heretics by Israel. So that's, that's the setup there. Something else that I feel like is super interesting and noteworthy about the interactions between these two races that's more recent to the time of Acts that we're talking about right now is in the Gospels, we see Jesus himself not just telling stories about the Samaritans. The most widely known one is probably the Good Samaritan, right? Like a lot of people have heard about that one. But he actually starts to interact with them. This is one of the things that make him super unpopular with the leadership at the time. And it's something that opens the gate for how we see Philip interacting with them now. So Jesus is starting to interact with them. Philip is about to blow that gate wide open. All right, let's pick up in verse 6. Or yeah, six. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, in pure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. So we see Philip proclaiming the Christ, which by the way, Christ just means the Messiah, the, the chosen one that was coming to deliver them, which the Samaritans were also looking for. He proclaims the Christ, and he performs miracles. And what do the Samaritans do? They pay attention, they heard the message of salvation. They saw the acts of healing, and they responded with what the text says, great joy. So something is happening here, something very new, something kind of scandalous, something seemingly that God is behind, even if the people are not. All right, verse 9. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city, and amazed all the people in Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all of the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, They were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. Okay. Here we meet Simon. Simon is a famous Samaritan in the place where Philip is staying. And he's a kind of interesting fellow from what we know of him, but we don't know a ton, right? Here's what we know. We know that he performs some magic acts, some sorcery of some kind. We know that because of his illusions, he is somewhat, at least, connected to, like, the idea or the image of a local deity. Even if it's just by his own claims, he has that connection. Okay, and then that's about it. But remember what we've been saying all along, that the main character of Acts and of all of the passages that we're going to encounter in this book is the Holy Spirit. Simon really is just kind of a pretty brief side character, and yet there's some pretty interesting things that we can pick up from him. Besides the whole sorcerer bit, which, by the way, I love that he boasts about himself, how dazzling he is. That's pretty interesting. The Great Power of God, that's, okay, that's a pretty cool nickname, I'll give you that. But honestly, I'm kind of glad he lived so long ago, because I I really feel like there's some fierce competition that's coming up in the future, like Merlin, Sauron, Glinda the Good Witch, the White Witch, Dr. Strange, uh, Dumbledore, Gandalf. right anyway besides the whole sorcerer bit what's noteworthy to me about simon is that he is curious and we can debate his curiosity but but he is curious about philip and and about what's happening here and he seems genuinely curious about the message and the miracles simon is curious and it leads him to encountering the Christian faith in a way that he wouldn't have if he wasn't curious about it He is clearly fascinated by the signs and the wonders that philip is performing and in that There is something else that's significantly standing out about him Philip is is not pointing towards himself as the source of his power and ability but to jesus Philip is sharing a message that clearly points not to him but to jesus being the christ the Messiah, the Deliverer that the people have been waiting for. And people are believing it widely, seemingly authentically. So Simon is seeing this, and he's he's amazed at it. He's intrigued, at the very least, by what is offered in Jesus. All right, let's keep going with the text. Verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the Word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. All right, this is this is an interesting part of the story. I don't know about for you, or maybe it came up in your discussions this past week. But it raised a ton of questions for me, these couple verses. Like I literally like was writing out a ton of my questions. So much so that I actually want to go on a little bit more and then follow this thread that we've been starting to pull with Simon and then circle back around to this section to talk about it a little bit more later. Okay, so let's continue on with Simon first. Let's go back into the text 18. So put a pin in this. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought that you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before god repent of this wickedness and pray to the lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart for i see that you are full of bitterness and you're captive to sin then simon answered pray to the lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me oh simon oh simon it is so, it is just, it's unclear exactly what he means, or what is meant by Simon believing and being baptized, because it does say that. So his reaction to the gospel is probably something more than just pretending, okay? It does say he believed and he followed the on baptism but it also seems like something less than an authentic life-changing experience with Jesus, hence the rebuke that he gets from Peter, okay? So Somewhere in the middle of that is where his faith is existing. And it seems really confusing to us as onlookers. Anybody getting some Kanye vibes? A little bit like, what? What is that? Real? Fake? What? Justin Bieber? I mean, I could go on and on with people that feels like, you're confusing. Um, But, needless to say, I wonder if you yourself have ever felt in a similar place. Okay, hear me out. Like, there is something, there is something real here with the message of the gospel. But just not quite sure what to do with it affecting your life quite yet. Okay. It actually reminds me of Jesus' parable of the sower, if you know that one, where he talks about the word of God going out and being received In different ways by different people specifically he talks about four types of soil but specifically i'm thinking about the rocky soil where the message isn't given long enough to really like take root in a person's heart and so when it starts to come up it gets burned up pretty quickly by any resistance or maybe it's the thorny soil Where the message of God starts to grow in a person's life, but it's choked out by the cares and the worries of the world, is what he says. By the person's um, unchanged priorities or their concerns. So caught in that, at times, conflicting intersection of a genuine intrigue and hope for the message of God, but then also where it costs the identity or the lifestyle that you've been building so far. I think we can imagine that. We don't know how long Simon was listening and learning from Philip about the gospel, but we do know that he got distracted, to say the least, okay, by the actions, by those signs and wonders that were accompanying his message. And it's kind of not surprising because that's exactly the spot where it's intersecting with his old identity that he built for himself. His previous lifestyle seems to get the better of him, And he gets fixated on this ability to perform signs. So Simon tries to do what is logical to him. He tries to buy the power of the Spirit. Interesting. All right, this might sound kind of outlandish or funny to us to just like outright ask the price that we could pay for the power of God. But what doesn't sound as outlandish or funny is to think about trying to manipulate the power of God. Okay, follow me on this. Wanting the power of God to tell you what's going to happen in the future, right, with a relationship or an opportunity or a circumstance, wanting the power of God to feel something. Maybe it's like the... To feel peace or relaxed or calm wanting the power of god to change something or someone wanting god to give you something none of these are bad things to want in the context of relationship with god but when we want just these things to happen for us or to just work out for us or be solved for us without the relationship of god they are the ways that we can try to manipulate or use God for his power. To put it another way, when we want the power of God, but not the person of God, we're trying to manipulate or use God. Not unlike Simon wanting to buy some new magic tricks. I don't know if somebody needs to hear that this morning, but when we want the power of God, but not the person of God. We are trying to manipulate or use him. We're trying to get those magic tricks for our own personal benefit outside of God. (sighs) Let me see if I can think of an example for you. So, ta-da! Here's a peek into the future. Ta-da! Here's a boyfriend or girlfriend. Ta-da! You don't have to feel sad about your choices anymore. For me, ta-da, well-behaved children, or ta-da, endless energy, you can have it. Or, Or maybe it's, you get a scholarship, and you get good grades, and you get financial stability, and you get a puppy that will cuddle you, and you get your dream job, right? That Oprah factor. Listen to me, friends. I know I'm being silly with that, but just because we experience this temptation... To try to use the God for His power or His gifts does not automatically mean that our faith is not real, or that we're somehow pretending about everything. Just like Peter's rebuke, or to say confrontation of Simon, it just points to there's something going on. The heart is not right with God. And the call is to repent, to enter in or to enter back in to relationship with God, where his spirit is a gift because it's his presence. He's not a genie. Hear me on this, okay? If we can recognize, if we can see when and where you have, or maybe right now even you're trying to use the spirit of God to get something, You do not need to hide in shame. Feel the conviction of it, for sure. But you don't need to make a plan or shy away from interacting with God or walk away from the faith that you've built so far. God tells us and Peter reminds us here to repent. What does that mean? That means to apologize, to turn back into relationship with God, to show back up for actual relationship. Recognize it, admit it, show back up. It's true, it is so true, because it's true in my own life. He forgives us when we give in to this temptation to, to fixate on his power and how we can use it for ourselves. He really does. The Spirit of God cannot be bought or manipulated or controlled remember we've seen this already today at the beginning with the jewish leaders remember when they were trying to control the spirit and it did not work it cannot be done and praise god that it cannot be done because it truly is a terrifying picture if we believe that people can change god's mind or manipulate him in any way We can trust him. All right, the wrap-up of our of our encounter with Simon is kind of just as puzzling as the rest of him. His response to Peter is curious. I'm not quite sure what it means. Nobody is quite sure what he means by that, okay? It's unclear what exactly it means or what's, what happens to him, and it seems like, at least it seems, he's concerned about escaping God's punishment versus receiving salvation or having an encounter with Jesus, although he may go on to do that. I don't know. And this is underscored by the fact that he doesn't actually pray himself. He asks Peter to pray for him, which maybe there's just some weird power dynamic still going on in his mind, like God will listen to Peter more than him, or I don't know. And then the topic changes. The narration moves on, and we don't hear about Simon ever again. This kind of stuff that happens in the the text is frustrating to me, but it's kind of not all that surprising. Maybe for two reasons. This seems to happen all the time as you read through the Gospels. We're like, all of these people are having these encounters with Jesus, and it seems like, wow, there's something going on here. It's like a pivotal, and there's potential life-changing conversations. And we don't hear how it ends up. We don't hear what they end up saying or deciding or doing. And maybe the second reason that it's not all that surprising that we kind of don't hear what happens with Simon is that to remember that Peter's not the main focus of the passage. Yes, Simon is not the main focus of the passage. As we read about Jesus interacting with folks and as the apostles are interacting with people here, we're reminded in the abruptness of the end of Simon's story that the main character is God. He's the one we're paying attention to. It is Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the work that he is doing. So how does it wrap up? One last verse, 25, says, here's what we get. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Okay, so we're back to Peter and John, Jesus' super close friends, the guys that were monumentous in starting up the church. They stay around for a while. They do some more teaching to all the converts. They make sure people are on the right track as far as what they're believing. And then they start heading back to Jerusalem. And then they stop along the way in all of these little towns and villages to spread the gospel of Jesus in the other Samaritan towns. Why is this a big deal? Let's be very clear right here that the message that is being brought to the people of Samaria Samaria was not a fluke in just one small town with one guy named Philip. It is the start of a movement everywhere in Samaria and beyond. Okay, The Spirit is on the move. That's how we end this section. He is doing a new thing. I don't know if you guys are familiar, this, this part of the text reminds me of Isaiah 43:19. 19. Jot that down somewhere. Isaiah 43:19. It is a great one to memorize. It says, see, I am doing a new thing. Do you, it, now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. And I feel like, man, God, that is what, that's what you're doing here. You're doing a new thing. You are making a way of salvation in the wilderness water, where there was just wasteland, right? That's a side note, tangent, but that's the verse I keep thinking of. Okay, so that reminds me that we need to go back up. we need to go back to that kind of weird spot with the Holy Spirit and Peter and John needing to come. So I can put the text back up there for you guys. I'm talking about verses 14 to 17 that we kind of skipped before. So this is the part um, where the receiving of the Holy Spirit Feels kind of mysterious, kind of weird. Um, maybe there's a lot of questions that come up, specifically why the apostles needed to come and lay hands on the people to pass on the Holy Spirit. Okay, this is this is uh, there's a lot that is puzzling in this passage, and even has caused some division about how to interpret these verses. Um, and I think they come from some good questions, like. Why wasn't believing in baptism enough? Why didn't they automatically get the spirit like we think of today? Why did they need the apostles, those people that the disciples that were directly under Jesus? Why did they need them to pass on the Spirit? Especially if the seven deacons could already perform signs and miracles. We see that already happening. It's a clear sign that the Spirit is with them. Why did why did they need to lay hands on them? Laying hands is just saying praying for them. Touching them. Did Philip not do a good enough job? Was he like still training? You know, what is this the usual experience? Is this a special circumstance? What's happening? So there's different theologies. And quite honestly, different denominations might answer this slightly differently. But a couple of things I think are really helpful to keep in mind when thinking about this passage. First, it's important to remember that the Spirit comes in different ways to different people. I was talking about this with Nick, and he was who studied this book a ton, and he was saying he sees five pretty distinct ways over the course of Acts where the Spirit is encountering different people in different ways for different purposes. Remember, the Holy Spirit was given in a different way to the believing Jews at Pentecost, Remember the whole, like, wind and tongues of fire and all of that jazz in the few chapters before this. And then it's going to be given in yet another way right next, at the next passage that we're going to look at the next time we're together, to a Gentile named Cornelius. Okay, so it's it's just different. The second thing that I think is important, vital to keep in mind, is this is an unquestionable, undeniably huge milestone, this event, this coming to faith in Samaria. It's really, really hard for us to appreciate it. We are, we are more than used to the idea of Christianity and the gospel being extended to and believed in all kinds of people groups, races, nations, creeds. Like we know of all kinds of churches that exist all over the globe, even in America, we know of churches that speak all different kinds of languages. We have a Bible translation in different languages at our fingertips on our phone constantly. We have had the incredible benefit of getting to see the church as a global movement and salvation offered to all of humanity. That is just starting right here where we're talking about. This is the sharing the sharing of faith and its acceptance by people outside of the traditional nation of Israel in this moment is shocking and scandalous and monumental. Follow me on this. Okay, the Mosaic law, way back from the Old Testament, contained basic prohibitions against mixing with non-Jews even. We're used to thinking about a multicultural mix of people, But in this time, in this place, it was basically illegal to associate or visit with a Gentile. Now we know that those laws were there to help Israel to stay focused on God, to persevere and preserve like a pure faith, not dilute it with idols and harmful cultural practices that would lead people astray because that's what happened. But we know that those laws were not to exclude people from encountering God. But the traditions of the law, how they played out, sure could feel like that. So here, the message of the gospel of being chosen, loved, rescued, redeemed by God, is going beyond the people of Israel, out to these kind of hybrid, half-Jewish folks and is on its way to even further out to Gentiles, completely non-Jewish people. This is a hugely significant moment, and the Spirit is choosing to mark it in a distinct way. It's an important new stage in the advancement of the gospel. It is great news, but it is also confusing and concerning news for the people at the time. Like, what? so what happens now? Would the rift between these two races, would they keep going? Is it suddenly over? The gospel welcomed the Samaritans, but would the Jews welcome them? Is this the start of factions already in the brand new church, like Samaritan Christians and Jewish Christians? Is the church already splitting apart? Maybe, maybe the apostles, these fathers of the faith, coming and being present there and laying hands on the Samaritans was less of a practical way to pass along the Spirit, but more of a public sign of acceptance, a declaration of embracing these new converts. Maybe it's not so much that the Samaritans needed the apostles to receive the Spirit, but that God was inviting the apostles in to witness what he was doing firsthand. So that there is no doubt what God's intentions are here, what his work and his plan is, so that these men can be assured because they're the ones that are tasked with leading the church forward. Because remember, including this people group is super controversial and will definitely come with debate, will definitely be fought over. Come with good questions. This coming of the apostles, their involvement and their blessing even demonstrated by the pillars of the church that beyond a shadow of a doubt, the Samaritans had really truly become members of the church. One body united by one spirit. This wasn't the idea or work of a handful of zealous people being excited about spreading a cause, but was the Holy Spirit choosing and ordaining that others be included in his salvation of the world. In fact, we're going to see this again in our next look at Acts, where the Holy Spirit's move to the Gentiles in two weeks, because we won't be here for a fall retreat next week. But after that, through an encounter that Peter has with a man named Cornelius, I mentioned him earlier. Similar situation, where the Spirit could have just communicated the gospel directly to Cornelius, but chooses to involve Peter and other disciples to witness this experience. The book of Acts is all about the work of the Holy Spirit, about carrying the message of salvation to all people, about the outward movement of salvation by Christ followers to the ends of the earth. This is how the gospel and the Holy Spirit started the church, this is how it moved 2000 years ago and it is exactly the same of how it still works and how the spirit still moves today bringing the gospel message of hope and rescue and redemption to every human being the spirit is the one that carries the church forward And we're the ones that have to wrestle with our assumptions and our biases of how God operates and what he is doing. We must wrestle with our desires to try to control or manipulate God for what we think should happen, for our own individual lives or circumstances or desires or ambitions, hoping for magic tricks that give us power or influence or abilities or good circumstances. The spirit is still on the move. And like Simon, we are invited to get our hearts right before God. To repent and ask forgiveness and be set free from that bitterness and sin. And like Peter and John, we're invited to come and see, to be part of God's rescue mission to the whole world. To be part of what he is doing. Would you guys pray with me?